Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And hello. Change of plans. <laughs> we'll change plans. So today we thought we were going to be doing Beloved, but because of a variety of reasons, including some uh, time constraints, we did a little switcheroo. But the movie we chose instead is appropriate for today because it is snowing. I know it's February... But it was warm earlier this week, and I thought we were done, and we're not done. Wah. It's rude. It's, it's truly rude. It's super rude. I don't like it. No. No, it's just the one last kick in the gut from Ohio winter. Yeah. Where we were at 60 degrees two days ago. Or no, 60 degrees even like yesterday. I was not wearing a coat yesterday. Yeah. And now it is snowing. Right. I had to bust out the snow boots again. Yeah. Not cool, Ohio. But hopefully this is the last time. But, you know, we'll get that random April snow shower. So, yeah, (laughs) it was supposed to be like 60, 70 degrees in a couple of days again. Allegedly. Allegedly. Everybody's going to go wash their car. This will come out after I'm saying this, but don't go wash your car in the next couple of days. It's going to be nuts. (laughs) (laughs) But we were like, you know what? Our hearts are cold and icy because of the snow. Let's watch a movie about a cold and icy place. Yeah. So we picked 30 Days of Night. Yeah, sort of a seminal vampire film that uh, flipped the script on vampire stuff. And as part of the horror comic tradition, as well as the horror film tradition, this one came out in 2007. When did The Walking Dead start? The show or the comics? Both. Both? So the show started in 2010. But I was working at the library when they started coming out and getting really popular. So I want to say like 06 is when the comics came out. 2003. Oh, okay. Well, it was getting hot by the point yes. that I was working in yeah. the library. And this movie and the comic for 30 Days of Night came out around the same time. Yes. And it it like started this whole craze. I mean, honestly, if we're being totally honest, horror conventions are pretty much bolstered by these like this series of movies that came from comic books because otherwise like there were some dry years where I feel like only The Walking Dead was keeping horror conventions alive. Oh, yeah. Certain horror conventions. Yes. yes. The thing that happened with The Walking Dead very specifically is that, like, the comics were super popular, but I don't think anybody anticipated how much of a runaway hit the show was going to be. Yeah. Especially in terms of the level of celebrity that the cast members would achieve, especially people like Norman Reedus, who was already on the convention scene Mm -hmm. because of... uh, Boondock Saints. Boondock Saints. Yes, that one. So he and several of the other cast members already had like convention deals for minor projects they had been in. And so they were doing these smaller conventions Then Walking Dead became super, super giant, and a bunch of the cast members were still under contract to, like, just some, like, regular horror conventions before the entire show and cast got exclusivity convention deals with, I think it was Wizard World Chicago first, and, like, all of the smaller conventions that had really seen a bump because of this unanticipated popularity of the show, they lost them as guests for a while. And it was a weird thing 
where it was like, as long as the characters were alive on the show, they were under the exclusivity deal. Because as like characters started to die off in the show, you would see them back on the broader convention circuit. Like it was something like once they were no longer considered like, I don't know if it was like main cast, like Mm -hmm. main or recurring cast, they could go back and do conventions anywhere. Huh. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. This movie came out around the same time that all of the big horror comic, you know, either tie-ins or adaptations or what have you, were super hot. I mean, even outside of the horror genre, we had The Watchmen, which came out, and that was like a huge runaway hit, regardless of how you feel about Zack Snyder now. (laughs) It was a big deal at the time. 300, we had some Alan Moore adaptations, which everybody loves Alan Moore adaptations, This was like around that same time, although I feel like 30 Days of Night didn't get the same love as some of those other bigger movies. It kind of didn't as a movie. Well, so here's the interesting thing about 30 Days of Night as a comic is Steve Niles, who wrote it and wrote the movie, is considered alongside Robert Kirkman and several other creators as being like the people who sort of revived horror comics Because just like with film, like horror comics kind of ebb and flow, especially in mass popularity, like they're always out there on the indies, of course. But in the early 2000s, like IDW and Image in particular really sort of revived the horror comic movement. Like Vertigo did its thing for a while. And there were all these indie companies in like the 80s and the early 90s that were doing stuff. Fun fact, a lot of people might not realize this. Fangoria had their own comic wing at one point. But they all kind of went under, and that was part of that big, like, comics boom and bust in the 90s. Well, in the 2000s, there was this renewed interest, and you saw a lot of indie creators uh, working with these cool indie companies like Image and IDW to make horror comics again. We're still seeing, like, waves of that now, but I feel like people know 30 Days of Night by reputation. What they don't realize is unlike The Walking Dead, which was this big, long, epic story, the original 30 Days of Night was only three issues. Right. And then it had like successive follow-up like series, but they were always short series. It was always these like three issues, like 30 Days of Night, Darkest Days. There was an X-Files crossover at one point. Yeah, which was really cool, by the way. It's like Army of Darkness versus Predator. Yeah, yeah. It's like weird mashups. Yeah. Which comics are a great, that's a great medium to do a weird mashup in because like that would never be successful as a TV show or a movie or even an episode (laughs) of a TV show. But as a comic where there are no rules, you know, there are no quote unquote rules that you have to abide by or, you know, get in trouble for breaking. You could do like, sure, let's do 30 Days of Night X-Files, which it does make sense. It absolutely would be a thing that Mulder and Scully would go investigate. Yeah. And at the time, IDW had the comic license for Mm X-Files and they did. And this was before the show came back. They did... um, This was kind of a trend in comics in the early to mid-2000s. They did this with Buffy, too, where they would do a follow-up season to an ended show on television in comics. Oh. So you had, like, a whole other X-Files, air quotes, season in comics on IDW. And the IDW comics were really, really good. I have the full run of those. They were excellent. Oh, nice. Uh, Tops did a run when the show was originally on the air. And those were good. But the IDW ones, just the storytelling was fantastic. They did the same thing with Buffy. 
they've done it with a bunch of things where they're like, we're going to do like a season whatever in the comics and mm-hmm. maybe bring back some of the original writers and creators. So that's why they did the 30 days crossover is that they were both IDW properties. Oh, cool. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. So interesting way that this particular movie was kind of birthed into the world. And I did read that Sam Raimi was originally on deck to direct, but then he stepped down and decided that he was going to produce instead. And I was like, that's such a cool thing to be self-aware of, to say like, hey, I really am interested in being part of this project, but maybe I would not be as good of a director as maybe somebody else. And so instead, I'm going to throw my financial backing behind it because I still want to be a part of it. I still want to have some control over it. But I think that somebody else should be in the director's chair. I think that was absolutely the right choice because I love Sam Raimi. But I think his style tends to be almost more comic booky in a traditional sense. And that's actually not what this story needed. I feel like it might have been a little too over the top for this style of story if he had directed Yeah, and the director who did do this movie, David Slade, actually, before this, did Hard Candy. I don't know if you've seen Hard Candy. Oh, yeah. But he definitely has a much, much, much darker palette, I guess you could say. Yeah. And not in a bad way. He's just, uh, he's definitely much, much different than Sam Raimi. And Sam Raimi has a tendency to get over the top and like campy in a way that's really cool and lends itself well to certain types of film. But this one is very dark and has actually a dark ending. So I think kind of giving up that directorial control and saying, hey, I want to be a part of this, but not as a director was a good move. Yeah, definitely. Would have been a totally different movie had it been Sam Raimi as director versus David Slade. Yeah. In that regard, I'm glad because I actually really do like this movie. It is definitely a quintessential vampire movie, very different than other vampires that we see. Like you mentioned while we were watching it, this isn't a True Blood vampire. This isn't a Anne Rice vampire. It's not even a Twilight vampire. It is, though, I think, as we were talking about comic books, I think that this is closer to a Buffy vampire than anything else. Yeah, Buffy. And I think a lot of people have compared it to Salem's Lot. Mm -hmm. And although this was not out, then I can definitely see some Midnight Mass parallels too. Yeah, with like an intelligent, but still driven, like not so intelligent as like a True Blood or an Interview with the Vampire, but still a blood-driven, like very brutal vampire. More of a creature than a uh, creature of the night. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I like that. I like to see kind of a vampire that's like totally unbridled by higher thinking. It's like, no, we're going to go and trash this entire town and drink everybody's blood and we don't give a shit. I like that. I think that that's a vampire that we don't get to see a lot of. Yeah, more of a chaotic vampire not so interested in like feeding for survival and you know partaking of all of the other things that you could get out of immortality or eternal life and being driven just by the need to feed nonstop in almost a gluttonous way fun fact so this director as we're talking about like you know this type of vampire this director also directed the twilight movie eclipse Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Okay. Because those are totally different vampires. Yeah. Yeah. Now, granted, that was, I think, the third movie of the four. Okay. I don't know their names. 
I'm just like, the Twilight movies. Uh. Yeah, this was the one where Bella has to choose between Edward and Jacob. Team oh, Edward okay. Team Jacob. Yeah. yeah. Um, so before she had the baby. Right. Right. Yeah, I know there's a baby in one of them. <laughs> Have you never seen any of the movies? I've seen the first one. Oh, my God. You yeah. should, just for the laughs, go and watch through all of them. <laughs> because I did that during the pandemic. They were all on Netflix at the beginning of the pandemic. And I watched them. And I'm like, what the actual hell am I watching? <laughs> I cannot even understand what is happening right now. Yeah. It's fun to go through and watch them just for that. To be like, what happened? <laughs> like, what am I even seeing? What in the Mormon vampire am I watching right now? <laughs> Luckily, he came back from that and <laughs> did like a couple episodes of Black Mirror and some other like TV shows and stuff. He also did Nightmare Cinema. He had a, a short oh, on Nightmare yeah, Cinema. Yeah. He also did some American Gods and he also directed Hannibal from 2013 to 2014, nice. several episodes. So God bless for that because holy cow, if you had ended with Eclipse, like, ugh, yeah, you know, I'd be sad for you. One of the lowest rated of the of the movies. Granted, the the first one is rated, I think the highest and it's 5.3 out of 10. So just to give you some commentary on that. It's a wild ride. Yeah. Vampire baseball. All I gotta say. Oh, wow. I'm just here for Kristen Stewart's queer renaissance. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. I can't wait to see her in that. What's the that? bodybuilding yeah. movie? Yeah, I know. I'm here for that. I was looking it up and I just found a Rolling Stone headline that was like, Kristen Stewart collects fast cars, but drives a minivan named Beth. And I'm just like, <laughs> that's the gayest shit I've ever Stewart. heard. Yeah. <laughs> I drive a minivan named Beth. Oh, God, that is amazing. Love Lies Bleeding. Well, I can't wait to see Love Lies Bleeding. I'm actually very excited about that one. And drive away dolls. But yes, those are not horror movies. No, <laughs> those are just movies I'm excited about seeing. Back to 30 Days of Night. I feel like this movie kind of sparked a renaissance in the isolated Arctic horror genre. Yeah, yeah. Not to say that it was dead, because there are some great movies that are in that tradition. Obviously, The Thing, one of my favorite movies of all time. But we hadn't really gotten a lot of that lately. I don't know if you remember the show Northern Exposure. Vaguely, yeah. My parents watched it. It wasn't a horror show. It was like a, a drama sitcom-y type. It wasn't really a sitcom. It was more like a drama show, like Flavor of the Week type thing. But it was set in a town in Alaska. But not as far north as this town, which at the time, which this was 2007, which we're going to talk about this. At the time, this town was called Barrow, which was an actual town, but it has gone back to its indigenous name, which is Utkiagvuk. So that is the name of the town now. It was called Barrow from like the 50s when it became an incorporated town until it regained its indigenous name. That's going to kind of, I think, open up a can of worms that we wanted to talk about in terms of this movie, because yeah. I looked at a map and this is the second most northern city or settlement in all of the United States. So it's on Alaska. It's on the very tippy top of Alaska, almost the furthest point north. There's one other town that's more northern than this particular town. So it's way out in the middle of nowhere. It's not like in the Anchorage or Juneau area where, you know, you are kind of closer to Canada. In this particular case, Utkiagvuk is like not accessible by to any other place by road. You have to fly there. 
which I can't even fathom what that's right, like. Yeah. To not be able to just drive wherever I want to go. They don't have paved roads because of permafrost. They have roads that connect in the town, but you can't go anywhere else with your car. Sometimes in the like super snowy times, the only way that you can access it is actually not even by plane. You have to go by snowmobile. Oh, wow. And I said, okay, you know, Juliet and I have this back and forth thing where we send each other houses and I see these houses. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I could definitely live in. I could definitely live in the snow. Yeah. Guess what? Your girl could not. (laughs) Oh, yeah, truly. I mean, I was like, as we were watching this movie, scrolling Instagram on like cheap Nordic houses. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. The reality is it's not fine for me. I mean, I am the person who legit over the past few days was like, oh, my God, it's getting dark after 5 p.m. My mental health has skyrocketed, improved. (laughs) And I'm over here thinking I could like live anywhere in the nordic region yeah uh, you know expectations versus reality here are wildly outsized i think i would probably get cabin fever in like four hours (laughs) oh yeah they would just find me like with my face torn off because we can't go anywhere yeah that's a thing i think with gals of the millennial age who are maybe potentially neurodivergent were never like you know diagnosed is that if you don't leave the house at least once a day, you're going to drive yourself like rowdy. You're going to oh, just yeah. absolutely yeah. lose it. <laughs> there are times where I'm like, man, I should really rest and relax. And then I rest and relax. And I'm like, I have a headache. I have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this meme the other day that was like, it might have been a Virgo meme. If it wasn't, it should have been a Virgo specific <laughs> meme. It was like, I should take time to rest and relax now. Hmm. How can I rest and relax more efficiently and productively? <laughs> oh yeah (laughs) yep exactly like should i put this on my calendar and then i get overwhelmed by all the things on my calendar and then then i just don't do it i just ignore it i have a wonderful colleague who will schedule time on his calendar in the workday like focus block i am so envious of the ability to do that because he will like schedule it and he'll actually like be in his office with his door closed like focusing on stuff me, if I were to schedule that, I'd just be like, bleh, bleh, bleh. <laughs> what are all the things I haven't done yet that I can cram into my focus block? Yeah. <laughs> That's focusing, right? Panic block, more <laughs> like it for me. Panic block. <laughs> this is the hour of the day where I get caught up on everything else and then I'm more tired at the end of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's called between 3 and 4 p.m. for me. <laughs> it doesn't need to be scheduled. It just needs to get done. Yeah. <laughs> I do love an isolated Arctic horror story. I really like any sort of isolation horror, which I think is kind of an easy setting. Yeah. I mean, you can look at other movies that came out around this time, like Cabin Fever came out around this time now that I'm talking about it. Lots of movies kind of use that sort of isolation setting. In this case, it was not only isolated because of the geography of the area, but also by design from the stranger, quote unquote, Uh, his character also kind of like screwed them over in terms of isolation, burned all their satellite phones, made it so that they only had a couple of trucks that they could use, ruined their helicopter. All of the planes had flown out anyway. So there's a really good podcast called The White Vault, which also deals with that in Sweden. It's also kind of an isolation winter horror story. And then True Detective, the night country season that just came out, is also set in it's a fake town in that particular show, but it's based off of a real town. And in the show, it's called Ennis. 
And it is the same thing where in the show, we are actually entering the nighttime, the permanent night for Alaska, which in their case is only, I think it's only a week. Mm. And so that must be further down from where Utkiagvuk is. Utkiagvuk is on the coast, on the north coast of Alaska. So like literally in the Arctic Circle. It's such a cool place to set a horror film because what could be scarier than nighttime all the time? And in reality, isn't their period of darkness longer than 30 days? Yeah, I read that it's like 60 plus days and the most they've ever gotten was 66 days. Wow. So take this movie and then multiply it by two. Everybody's dead. Vampires win. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Very different outcome. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they use it to bookend the story and like, it just so happens all these vampires are like, oh shit, it's sun time. Let's go. You know, let's run away. Except for Vincent, I think is the big bad's name. Yeah, who is a very different character in the comics. Yeah, so I was reading a little bit about that. Have you read the comics? Yeah. Okay, so I read that one of the big differences is that in the comic, he was trying to stop the vampires because like, the whole point was that they were going to Barrow in the comic to like make themselves known as vampires, like blow their whole like secret cover yeah so it was basically like they were going to both feed and kind of like take over and almost like enslave people like well we can be up and about and we could live here you know for a sustained period of time and kind of take over this town okay And, and so it was a little more complicated than what we see which i get in the construct of a movie And so Vincent, who I think was maybe Vicente in the comics, um, he was like an elder, like, leader vampire, like a higher ranking vampire. And he actually followed this kind of rogue group to Barrow to try to stop them because he was like, no, 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 like, this is not the wisest choice. Like, we've always lived in secret and we've survived this way. So actually, I feel like in that sense, the comic had a little more of some traditional sort of vampire society tropes that we see in things like Anne Rice in particular, and some other vampire media where it's like, do we reveal ourselves to humanity? I mean, that's the whole conceit of True Blood is, do we come out of the coffin, you know, or do we stay secret? And if we come out, does that give us power or does that make us more vulnerable or both? Right. And so the Vincent or Vicente character was sort of like the foil to the like, all right, let's bust out and be vampires and be open and also like wield our power against humanity kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, his character was called Marlo in this movie. So yeah. totally different. So that was different and kind of like takes the story to a whole extra level because in this case, it's just like vampires come to town, vampires slaughter everyone. Yeah. The end. Yeah. (laughs) Or vampires want to slaughter everyone anyways, which is okay. I think that this movie is kind of more of a horror action movie and didn't really need that extra layer of storytelling as where it probably wasn't as satisfying in comic book form if they had not added that extra level. I feel like this movie is very much a spiritual successor to 28 Days Later Mm -hmm. in that what's less important is like how the thing happens. And what's more important is this direct like 
unyielding threat that is just like constant to the main characters and is very aggressive and, you know, unendless. And there's this sort of glimmer of hope that seems very far off, but might be achievable. And it's more about the survival of it than, you know, the sort of nuance of the why the threat happened. Right. Coming off the heels of 28 Days Later, that was kind of a popular thing we were seeing, especially in horror films in like the early 2000s. So I think in that regard, I don't know if that choice was made because of the success of 28 Days Later, which, by the way, the new movie is in the works. Oh, my God. Right. Uh, <laughs> but um, I don't know if that was a conscious choice for 30 Days of Night, but it very much feels like that. When you look at those two movies next to each other, it's like, oh, yeah, they're making the choice to focus more on the survival in the movie rather than the sort of why or the complicated, like, backstory of the vampires, which I think works in a movie. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we don't need to know all of the backstory. Like, the vampires speak their own language. We don't get any, you know, commentary on that. We don't know why Marlo is the leader or why they have sort of like this hierarchy, like there's a bald one that's kind of the enforcer, like investigator guy. There's a female vampire who is like ostensibly a wife or partner to Marlo. We don't know any of those things. There's a child vampire yeah. that has tattoos, which is like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> like, how do you give a vampire a tattoo in this reality? Is it like you have to expose yourself to UV light and then you get it burnt on? Or was she a child with tattoos? Which, if so, she had an, I'm, I'm just going to call him EN because I can never pronounce that super long German name. But that German metal band. Oh, yeah, yeah. Einstersenden, Newbotten, whatever. I'm not pronouncing it right. I know. I just call him EN because I can't pronounce it. But how do you get a tattoo as a child vampire? That was a question I had. I know it's really weird. And they show up for like a half a frame. So I don't know. I'm probably just thinking about it way too hard. (laughs) This is sort of also kind of a spiritual successor to Near Dark. Yeah, definitely. Where you don't know why they're so mean and shitty and want to tear everybody up, but they do it. Yeah. And we just have to kind of roll with it. So I really like that one too. But 30 Days of Night is sort of like carrying on that tradition of, we don't have any idea why this person is doing what they're doing. They're just bad. I did also think that this one is interesting because we get a lot of setup that indicates that this group of vampires is really well organized. Yeah. And really thoughtful about the process because you have the stranger who comes into town ahead of time off of this like kind of ghost ship type thing because there's no lights on and it's dead and he's walking away from it. So sensibly they killed all the people on the ship and he comes into town and burns everyone's sat phones, which I was like, y'all didn't do a lot of investigation around this. And maybe it's because it's around the time that they're getting ready to have this big storm and all of this like nighttime stuff. So they're just like, well, whatever. Yeah. Just giant ship out in the ice. Yeah. It's fine. But the stranger comes in and like preps the town basically, for this, like, vampire craziness, which I thought was really interesting. And I think, really, The Stranger is, like, the Renfield of this. Oh, yeah. You know, everything from the sort of emerging from this seemingly abandoned ship to the jail scene, which has, like, big parallels to Renfield and Dracula, to being this sort of, like, harbinger, helper, a little... Rowdy, shall we say, in his 
quasi-vampirism because he behaves and interacts a little differently than the rest of the vampires. So he is kind of has a foot in both the human and the vampire worlds. And I thought that that was really well done to have that kind of standard figure that we see in so many vampire stories and, you know, comes to us from Bram Stoker represented here, but in a way that felt very true to this story. Like, it wasn't like they didn't do like a wink nudge, like, oh, what's your name? My name is Renfield. You know, like they didn't go there. But if you look closely enough, he is the Renfield figure in this. And he also eats weird food and doesn't get what he's promised. Right. That's kind of a nice thing, too, is that I like a movie that trusts its audience enough to not give everybody a nice happy ending and to have some like unfortunate martyrs in this movie, which we do. We have several of them. Yeah. One of the main characters, in fact. I liked that. At the beginning, I had forgotten what the like full game plan was because they were like, we should have come here ages ago. And then they just start tearing into everyone. I'm like, you know, I mentioned to you, this is not a sustainable game plan, (laughs) y'all. If you eat everyone, then there is no one to eat. Yeah, you're not thinking about your your food sources here long term. And we don't know like if they hibernate for long periods of time yeah or if that's they, true you know if they like must constantly have blood like in in rice vampires they can go a hundred years or yeah. more without blood they just like desiccate and dry up and look gross and they're wasteful too they like come in and they're just slashing people's throats and blood's getting everywhere and it's like that's really wasteful yeah they are not about a sustainable food supply <laughs> which is weird you would think like hitting blood banks or like yeah you know asking for people which it would totally take away from the cool violence of this movie but they could be like can you donate some blood yeah you wanna help me out here yeah <laughs> yeah i know that that would be weird a la true blood you yes know, true blood and or donors whatever but what's your game plan here because what about when somebody comes to this town after the 30 days of night and a plane comes in and they're like wow that's weird everybody's got their throat slit and there's blood everywhere yeah hmm natural causes yeah it's fine (laughs) natural causes what's that called a slab avalanche yeah have you ever heard of the um, there's a thing that happened in russia where a bunch of people died it was in the late 50s in the Ural Mountains, there were these Soviet hikers and they all died. And it was under this like mysterious circumstances. And they they investigated for a while. Some of them died of hypothermia. Some of them died from physical trauma. And basically they said there was a slab avalanche and that's why everybody died in these weird circumstances. Oh, so it's kind of like a running joke where if somebody dies in mysterious circumstances in the snow, they'll be like, well, it was slab avalanche. <laughs> like, oh, that person got their head torn off, slab avalanche. Gotcha. You know. There's a television show that's coming out about this, about the Dyatlov Pass incident. There's been a lot of media around it right now. So that's the only reason I know. And there's like a wink in True Detective in this latest season to that incident. Oh, okay. Where they're like, slab avalanche. And it's like, okay. Gotcha. Um, But yeah, they're just going to be like, yeah, it was an avalanche. And that's why all these people have their throats slit and their blood is all over the place. (laughs) It's fine. Their limbs are torn off in some cases. That makes sense. See, I go to like this weird, God, I think it's a German play that weirdly we did in high school. Like this play was so not appropriate for high schoolers, but whatever, we did it called The Visit, where it's this whole sinister thing about somebody coming back 
to their hometown where they were wronged and seeking revenge. And the ending line, it's basically this kind of mob justice situation. And they're like, oh, he died of joy. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Also, yes, inappropriate for school. What the hell? So inappropriate. <laughs> so very, very inappropriate. I've, I'm coming to realize so that my high school experience and your high school experience were wildly different, but also very different than the norm. Yes. <laughs> and it makes it really hard to relate to people who had regular, normal high school experiences. Totally. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys have never had a lockdown because of guns. They're like, what? No, you never had teachers fired because they got students pregnant. No, (laughs) I'm like, oh, you never had a dude drop acid and think he was a lizard and not come down off the top of the lockers. Nope. (laughs) Well, welcome to public school. (laughs) Yeah. And then I'm over here with like weird Catholic school stuff and also just like weird like, not just Catholic school, but, like, going to school with, like, some very, very wealthy people. Yeah. Uh, and not being a part of that world, but observing those shenanigans from afar. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. It makes it hard to relate to people. Where they're like, no, we just had, like, regular stuff. I'm like, you didn't have an eighth grader get pregnant by a 29-year-old? No. Okay, so funny enough, we had that, too. <laughs> you had an eighth grader get pregnant? Yeah. Oh, my God. It was a whole ass thing. Yeah. Yes. It would be really, really ignorant to say, oh, that was the first time, like, somebody got pregnant. But, you know, it was for us, we were in elementary school because our school was K through eight. And then oh, we went to high school. Okay. But it was definitely, like, the first time in a while or the first time that this person was, like, pregnant and continued going to school and it wasn't like they were just sent away because it's catholic school and that's what you do you know you send Um, them to public school yeah exactly and so that was a whole thing i distinctly remember because they had the parents of all like the sixth seventh and eighth graders come in for a meeting after hours oh my to, god like talk about this which is just so awful yeah and the only reason i knew about it is because i had choir practice at school at the same time we were like why are all the parents there holy crap yeah and then i asked my mom about it afterwards and she was like well <laughs> let me tell you <laughs> oh my gosh yeah see it wasn't like that for us it was just like oh she's pregnant and it became a thing afterwards because the person that got her pregnant was much older oh yeah um and went to jail because of it for us the person that got pregnant it was horrible because like she was treated like such a pariah yeah you know and i got to know her in high school and she was like very cognizant of the fact that like yeah, I'm that girl, yeah. you know. I'm the whore like, who got pregnant in yeah, eighth grade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. So for me, the structure of our school was that K through 5 was elementary, 6th through 8th was middle school, and then ninth through 12th was high school. Yeah. In like ninth and 10th grade, there were several girls who got pregnant. It was not weird at all. Yeah. We had a lot of girls who got pregnant and had babies in my high school. A lot, a lot. Like... So many that now they are old enough to have high schoolers. Oh, yeah. And I'm 33. So pretty young to have a a high schooler. But it was like not a big deal at all. And so it's just weird to see that like difference between eighth grade and ninth grade. But my high school was also weird because we were huge. My graduating class was gigantic. And even though our town wasn't that big, 
Although it is the largest brick community in America. <laughs> um, <laughs> it didn't seem like that big of a town, I guess, in the shadow of Dayton. But we had a wild time. I was regaling some of the stories to my partner and some friends when we were on the drive back from Cincinnati. And they were like, what the hell? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't know. That wasn't weird to me. Yeah. They were like, you know, yeah, it's friggin' weird. Yeah. I was like, you never had that happen? They were like, no, no, we didn't. I was also talking about some senior pranks. Uh, we had these like breezeways that went down this hill that were supposed to be that if it was raining, you walked through those yeah. instead of walking outside because all of the buildings were separate. And somebody put cooking oil all down the oh my God. breezeway and a couple people like got broken legs and arms and stuff. So they got expelled. Yeah. As, and that was as a senior prank. So yeah, I'll have to try and like drum up some other weird high school stories that I can think of. I guess we just, I just had a really strange high school experience. <laughs> oh, well, as far as we know, there's no high school in this place. <laughs> yeah. There's like barely any kids in the movie. There's only a few. We only see one like towards the tail end of the movie, but maybe they go to Anchorage for the maybe. winter. That is something that is kind of unusual is like this town is on the one hand stood up at the beginning of the movie as like a town, just a small town, but it is like absent of certain things like... You never see a grocery store at all, which I would imagine an isolated small town would have to have some sort of like general store or grocery store or something like that. You ne- you don't see children mm-hmm. at all. No schools. There are a lot of things that are kind of absent. And in the grand scheme of things, that's okay because it doesn't matter. And we're also meeting the town at a point where a lot of people are leaving because of this prolonged period of night. And I don't know if maybe for the purposes of the schools, like, that's just, like, a break. Like, Mm -hmm. that's, like, a winter break or or a whatever break. But, yeah, it was a little weird. Like, here's this town and there are no children. It's more like an industry town to me. Yeah. Where it's just, like, adult people who are, like, working jobs. And that's it. It's weird, though, that they would leave. You would think, like... It is. You know, okay, we can go to Anchorage and have less nighttime and like a little bit of daylight but even anchorage is going to have some prolonged periods of darkness not like days at a time but like 22 hours of night you know versus like a full day of night i just thought that was strange the whole like leaving before it gets dark thing was a little strange to me and i i only say that and this is like obviously not scientific at all but i've been watching some tiktoks of some folks that live in places that have prolonged periods of darkness and it's not like the whole town shuts down like right. there are certain preparations that are made and certain things that you kind of do to prepare for that but that's just part of the life cycle of your community is there are periods of light and there are periods of darkness and there are those hybrid periods that we here in Ohio would consider normal days, but it's not like everything grinds to a screeching halt and everyone scatters and flees. Now, maybe it's not like that in all places, but that part was a little surprising to me. But if I was watching this in 2007, I'd probably be like, oh, yeah, that's what you do. You leave when it gets dark. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, who knows? We didn't have TikTok to educate us no. any different. <laughs> That was a strange thing. Also coming off of True Detective, which I know I keep talking about it, but it's really good. Go watch season four. (laughs) And also Issa Lopez is going to do season five too. So you should probably watch season four. They have nighttime and it's not as long as 30 days. It's like seven or eight days, I think. And it happens around Christmas slash New Year's. So convenient for the purposes of the show. 
but everything goes on as normal. Yeah. And maybe it's just because it's not as long. They're like, well, it's only seven days. Like, I'm not going to spend money to fly out of here and then fly back for seven days of nighttime. Right. But also seems like it would suck for a town to grind to a screeching halt every time it's like, okay, well, it's time to get dark again. It feels really unsustainable. And like, I hate saying this, but towns like that that are really small in Alaska have a tendency to be economically pretty pretty small. So I don't understand or know if the viability of being able to completely leave is practical or realistic for a town that is going to be pretty economically downtrodden. Well, yeah, because you'd have to have two places to live. You'd have to have your place in the town and then a place to go to. So you either have to have family elsewhere, but you still have to have travel costs and things. Like, yeah, yeah, that just doesn't seem like economically sustainable. Maybe they just did that so that there were less characters to kill off. That would be my (laughs) assumption. For the... uh, Yeah. But also, I don't know. Listeners, if you know about the way Alaska works when it's nighttime, let us know because we don't have any idea. Yeah, please tell us. Honestly, I've only ever met like a handful of people who ever lived in Alaska for any length of time and one dude who was a fisherman in alaska but only for like six months at a time he would like go for six months live on the ship make all of his money for the year and then come back to dayton and take classes at sinclair that's how i met him so yeah i don't know anything about alaska or when it becomes nocturnal time do you just hibernate now that's what i have been watching on tiktok is a couple of families in more in the nordic region Mm -hmm. that have those prolonged periods of night and they talk about sort of like you know what they do as a family you know how they spend their time when it's darker like and it is definitely for these folks at least it seems to be more of a hunker down period you know they do go out and there is stuff to do in the town like oh yeah we hunker down in our house but we go into town to eat once a week or things like that so that's at least the experience i've seen you know the other thing that i found a little off about this movie and this is only based on like other vampire media is like at the end when he um, injects the vampire blood, when our lead character, Evan, injects the vampire blood to turn himself into a vampire. Number one, that's typically not how that works. Right. And number two, I thought it was really interesting that he injects the blood and he like is like hulked out like super badass vampire. Whereas in all other vampire media, like new vampires are like baby calves, you know? <laughs> like no way they could fight a they big just old vampire. are just like, I don't know, I'm confused and I want blood and eh, <laughs> you know? So I was like, that was very different. I was like, oh, not only is he like instantaneously a vampire, but he's like a badass who can fight as yeah. opposed to just like almost more vulnerable in those early days. Well, apparently that is one of the things in the comic too, is that the cold weather makes those vampires weaker. Yes. And that's why Evan yes. is even able to fight them at all because he is like used to the cold, I guess, ostensibly, or like <laughs> immediately is at the same level as everybody else, which who knows? I don't know. Yeah. For the purposes of the movie, we have to believe that that's the case. Yes. But yeah, like that's why the cold makes them weaker, which I was also like, why? They don't They don't have a beating heart. They don't need yeah. to breathe. Why would the cold make them weaker? It's confusing to me. Are they like cold-blooded? They're like Like lizards. frogs? <laughs> like frozen frogs? 
But then why would you come to a frozen area? Anyways, we have to believe that that's the case for the yeah, movie. Yeah. But yeah, that was definitely a weird thing. He like roided out immediately so that yeah. he could fight this old leader vampire, which that's another thing that's like pretty not like other types of vampire media. You would not have a baby vampire fighting like... Oh, yeah, no. You know, what's the name of the bald one in Buffy? Like the big bad... The master? Yeah, the master. Yeah. Like, baby Angelus would not be fighting the master. Right, exactly. Like, Angel in Buffy, or Angel in Angel, sure. Maybe yeah. he could fight the master, but no way when he was like, baby Angelus, would he do it? No. We have to suspend our disbelief a little bit, which is okay. Yeah. You also become a vampire so much more easily in this one. It's almost like an infection. Yeah. When Marlo is like advising the other vampires he tells them like make sure you remove the head because we don't want to change anyone right it's not like a you drink my blood i drink your blood it's a whole thing it's like i drink your blood you might become a vampire immediately after that the one dude john who eben doesn't know is a vampire gets scratched and becomes right. a vampire like nobody even drinks from him and that is more like a zombie thing yes. than a vampire thing, for sure. Yeah. It's like an infection, which that's cool, too. It does kind of toe the line between vampire and zombie a little bit. Yeah. Although these zombies are like, have brains. Yeah, it's more. It's much more in the 28 Days Later vein. Uh-huh. Because in this case, although this group of survivors ends up surviving for like 30 days, these vampires are definitely a lot more clever. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Where it's like, if you passed in front of a window where the light was on, they would probably find you. Yeah. I did want to say that this movie is definitely a product of 2007 in that we hadn't gotten with it enough to know that like Barlow should be called by its indigenous name, which is Utkiagvuk again. I will say that. And I'm really proud of myself because I looked it up to figure out how to pronounce it ahead of time. And then I wrote it phonetically for myself. Oh, nice. Because Good work. I would have forgotten immediately. I have goldfish memory. But also, this movie was filmed in New Zealand. Uh, right. None of the snow is snow. It's all salt because snow is way too expensive to produce and to keep producing in a movie. So unless you're like Steven Spielberg, you're going to be using salt right. instead of snow. And because of that, most of the people who are in this movie are either Australian or Kiwi. And unfortunately, none of them are indigenous Alaskan, except for some extras that we see at the beginning of the movie. So I think that if this movie were to be remade today, we probably would be a little bit more sensitive to that. And we'd also have to update their city name because it's not called Barrow anymore. So that was a little disappointing. And you mentioned to me that in the comic, Eben is actually indigenous Alaskan as well. And Correct. so there was a little bit of shit about josh hartnett being evan instead yeah definitely evan and perhaps even stella it's a little more nebulous with her in the comics are definitely of indigenous alaskan descent and that was one thing that people have expressed disappointment about is casting josh hartnett instead who does a good job in the role but obviously that you know in some respects, changes the relationship of the character to the place where he's living. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting watching this movie again, having done Blood Quantum for the podcast, mm -hmm. because now when I see Blood Quantum, I see what this movie could have been. Right. You know, um, and I actually just earlier this week was listening to an interview with um, uh, Sterling Harjo mm -hmm. um, from Reservation Dogs talking about that series and just talking about 
you know, that we are in this place where we are starting to see like indigenous stories told by indigenous people. Between those two things, between Blood Quantum and listening to that interview, I spent a lot of this movie just thinking about like what this movie could be if it was made now with more intention toward who is telling the story and or who is in the story or who is portraying the locals of that place. We were not there in 2007. And still today, like things like, you know, Reservation Dogs is considered like this revolutionary kind of outlier that is hopefully going to change the course of media. But especially when we think about Reservation Dogs and Prey Mm -hmm. and Blood Quantum together, like there's only three things, but it's way more than we've ever gotten. So the possibilities are far more open now. That was not that way in 2007, for sure. I could definitely see how this movie would be different because it wouldn't just be Josh Hartnett like trying to protect his maybe ex-wife, like on the rocks wife, you know, it would be about him protecting his place. Yeah. And like the place that he loves and is from, you know, versus like, no, I just need to protect Stella. Yeah. Once again, I'm going to vouch for True Detective Night Country because (laughs) that is a show that does deal with this with both indigenous actors and also discussing the place where they are in and where they are from and how to protect it. So there's like this whole subplot about this mining company and they're poisoning water in the town. Very important stories to be told. And I think that if we remade this movie now and we explored more of that, like, how am I tied to this place by heritage and also why I want to protect this place versus like, I want to protect my brother and my wife. (laughs) Yeah. Not that that's not a good reason, because it is, but how could we make this more fleshed out if we explored that as well? Yeah. I hope that in these discussions, like all of what we're talking about, I hope that Stephen Graham Jones is going to be getting some some adaptations, like The Only Good Indian, uh, My Heart is a Chainsaw. Like, please, for the love of God, please, somebody pick this up, put it on streaming, make a movie out of it, because his work is amazing, too. Yeah. So I'm just speaking that out loud and manifesting that to the world. Hopefully, maybe it's already in work in the works, and I just don't know about it. If that's the case, cool. Another thing I wanted to talk about in terms of characters in this movie is that you don't see characters that have dementia a lot in movies. Yeah, that's um, true. Which there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people who have dementia. And we don't see that a lot in film. And most of the time when you do see it, it's like a personal thing. Like I'm taking a personal experience that I have and, and putting it into this movie. Yes. So I do have to wonder if that's part of it. I don't know if it was in the comic, but... If it's not, like... I can't remember. I think it was. So I wonder if the writer had some sort of... Like, Steve Niles had some sort of um, experience with somebody with dementia. Because outside of this movie, the only ones I can think of that has a character with dementia are movies where that character is, like, the big bad. Like, the taking of Deborah Logan or... um, The Visit. The Visit. Um, There's another one. The Relic. Yeah. That's also one about dementia. So... Um, I thought that was interesting that to incorporate a character with dementia and also like the frustration because having someone close to me who has dementia and having taken care of that person, the reality that is depicted in this movie is absolutely 100% the case where they always want to leave yeah. they, for no good reason. 
they don't understand where they're at. They don't understand people who have died or not there present with them. They're confused. They're upset. And so they're going to put themselves at risk. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. I'm glad to see that in a movie, sort of a, I don't want to say casual representation, but like in an inclusion of that sort of a character and making that character a part, a big part of a, the plot. Yeah. It's interesting to see, especially a character with dementia in a survival context in a horror film, you know, and to think about what do the people around this character who are responsible for his care and survival in addition to their own survival, like what are they having to grapple with or adapt to make sure that he can survive in a situation that he is perceiving very differently than the rest of them are. Right, right. And not being able to tell them like, dude, you have to shut up because there are vampires that are going to hear you and kill you. He doesn't understand that. Right. Because a person with dementia, this isn't across the board, but largely lives in another reality. Yeah. Like a different time. And they can't reconcile the fact that they are not in that time so they still perceive themselves to be there. Like my dad who has dementia, he thinks that he is in the army still uh-huh. or shortly out of the army and that he needs to rejoin. So often he's like, well, I need to call the recruiter so that I can get uh, reenlisted or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, you're 72, so I can't do that. But he doesn't understand that. So that's like a frequent thing that he brings up where he's like, I call that recruiter. I'm going to kick his ass. I'm going to get him kicked out of the army or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. well sure yeah so the easiest thing for me to do is to play along with it right which is against the grain of a lot of other people and i saw that in this movie like my knee-jerk reaction is they're like we have to go upstairs mom has been dead for years and years and it's like actually that's not the way that you should have handled that (laughs) (laughs) like putting myself in this movie like actually um you should (laughs) right you should have been like yeah mom's upstairs and then redirected like yes you are lying but you have to. Yeah. In order to deal with somebody who has dementia. Like you just have to do that. You have to be like, okay, cool. Um, yeah, let's go get mom, but we actually need to go upstairs first and, you know, just kind of like play roll with it. Yeah. And if maybe that had happened and it was like less of a sad situation, maybe the dad wouldn't have jumped out the window. Although you're also in a survival situation. Right. So Maybe you weren't thinking clearly. Yeah, best practices kind of go out the window. And also, it was 2007. We had just, like, gotten the word dementia into our vernacular anyways. Absolutely. And just, like, stopped saying, that. well, he's just senile. He's old. It's yeah. Like, no. And I feel like definitely I've seen a shift in, like, the sort of advice given to people who are interacting with and caring for people with dementia, which is, like, I think there was a time when it was, like, considered like better best practice air quotes or whatever to try to bring them to our time and reality and now the prevailing advice seems to be like no just just roll with where they're at yeah rather than trying to forcibly pull them into you know like just just go with them on this right because like why do you want to upset them over and over again right because that's a lot especially for men that is the knee-jerk reaction is to get angry because they're confused and they're upset and then somebody's trying to tell them that their reality doesn't exist and it's like cool so you just want to make them upset right and it's so much easier to deal with somebody when with dementia when they are not upset and like 
would you want to be upset all the time and like crabby and shitty and somebody telling you all the time like no that's not right it's like just roll with it yeah like none of us like to be corrected or told that what we're perceiving is is not just like weird or off but is like straight up wrong exactly no one would respond well to that exactly some technical notes for this movie too i want to say like I looked up to see how they got this all shot at night, and they actually used a method called day for night, which is a process that a lot of movies that are set in the evening do. In this case, this entire movie is set at night. They obviously did this in New Zealand, where there is no 30 days of night, so they (laughs) had to, like, you know, work with it. And one of the things they do is they just, like, desaturate, (laughs) desaturate it, and then put a blue filter on it, and they're like, cool, it's nighttime. So the thing I learned today is that there is a day for night process. I thought that was really cool. And also, I did want to say there is this really cool shot in the movie. I was probably done by helicopter at this point, although I think that you could get a really cool shot doing using a drone now. And it's showing the vampires like basically massacring the town. And it's this really, really cool overhead shot. And some of it is CGI, like little parts of it. But it is a really cool way to capture the action of like many people being killed and slaughtered with all of these moving pieces happening at the same time. I just thought it was really cool. Yeah, that is a cool shot. And it accomplishes a lot in terms of story very efficiently. Yeah, because it's like, yep, okay, like 90% of the people in this town are dead. Yeah. Cool. All right, now we can move forward. Yeah, we understand what has happened here. (laughs) And like the town is trash too. Like cars are destroyed, houses are like the windows are blown out and all kinds of stuff. So it was a cool establishing shot to show like there's like, 10 of them and they killed pretty much everybody yeah all at one time so next time on attack the final girls in honor of juliet and her mom taking me to see swan lake for the first time which i had never seen before even though i've seen this movie before randomly we're gonna watch our first darren aronofsky film yes hopefully not our last one because i think there's some others that we could talk about but we are going to do 2010's black swan yes very excited about this one this one I mean, I would argue that many of his films are horror films, but this one is definitely the most obvious choice when it comes to Darren Aronofsky and horror. And there is a lot going on in this one, a lot of different types of horror kind of intersecting. I am really excited to talk about this now having seen Swan Lake and getting some context to it. So, And I've only seen it once before and I barely remember it. So I'm excited to do this one. Yeah, it'll be fun. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. And hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attackofthefinalgirls. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliette. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary.